Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, um, and welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm Tom Dusterberg, senior fellow here, and I'd like to welcome you uh, to the session on the economic slowdown in China and how to counter major Chinese outward-looking initiatives, such as the Belt and Road and Made in China 2025 program. Uh, our program today features our senior fellow, John Lee, who has written two reports on this subject, and uh, hard copies are available um, at the front desk if you're interested in the hard copy, and otherwise it's on, online at our website. As you, you shall see, John has dug deep into the roots of the Chinese economic slowdown in recent years, <clears throat> assembling a ton of hard data to support his approach and linking the Belt and Road and China 2025 programs to the internal political and economic imperatives which, he argues, result from the slowdown. This discussion has perhaps even greater urgency uh, today as the coronavirus epidemic is clearly weakening the Chinese economy even further. We're going to start, um, well, I, I would like to note too that uh, we want to thank the Smith Richardson Foundation which helped to support uh, John's work that led into these two reports. So we're going to start with John's overview uh, of the reports and then have commentary from two uh, noted China experts, Nick Lardy of the Peterson Institute and Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair here at Hudson, followed by a discussion among the panelists uh, from the stage uh, and then going to questions from you in the audience. So let's start with John's summary of his reports. Um, for background, John is a senior fellow here at Hudson, as well as the, the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where he is also an adjunct professor. His work on China was interrupted between 2016 and 2018, at least his academic work, when he served as the Nas senior national security advisor to Australian Foreign Minister Julie Bishop. Uh, John holds a doctorate and a master's degree in international relations from Oxford and a bachelor's degree from the University of New South Wales. He is one of the uh, foremost experts on the Chinese political economy and on both strategic and economic affairs in the Asia-Pacific region. John, thank you for being Uh, thank you, Tom. Um, thank you all for giving up your lunchtime and being here. Um, it's a pleasure to share the stage with Tom, my colleagues Tom and Patrick, um, and also Nicholas Lardy, whose work I followed for the last 10 years or so, and it's uh, his work that I've learnt uh, quite a lot from. Uh, I remember attending a roundtable in early 2015 in New York uh, on the Chinese economy, and in the room were some of the top uh, American experts on the Chinese economy, uh, a few bankers and a few uh, fund managers. And the verdict back then, early 2015, the verdict back then in that roundtable was close to unanimous that the Chinese economy was in real trouble uh, and that China would soon be in a world of economic pain. The reasons given then were all linked, extreme credit growth, a real estate bubble, a highly leveraged shadow banking or unregulated uh, lending sector, and growth in uh, local government debt. Uh, there was talk around that table about, a, about an impending fiscal crisis, 
because fiscal income was heavily dependent on uh, unsustainable industrial growth and a property boom. Uh, since the profitability of corporations in China were declining uh, and also real slowdown in real estate values, uh, the fiscal numbers back then for China were looking pretty grim. As Tom mentioned, I then entered the Australian government in, uh, at the beginning of early 2016 and I did not come back out until uh, mid-2018. And by then, it appeared to a lot in the outside world that China had successfully managed its problems and had sailed through this predicted financial crisis uh, just as it did in 2008 when uh, China's major export partners, the advanced economies, um, um, endured their financial crisis. And I found when I emerged back out into the uh, non-governmental world that rather than talk of Chinese problems, the conversation was about the uh, sheer scale and daring and ambition of China under uh, Xi Jinping, who had become uh, probably the most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. It, it struck me as well that the way the Chinese Communist Party spoke about China and itself had also changed quite dramatically. Up to around 2014, 2015, Chinese leaders tended to emphasise their vulnerability and the challenges facing uh, their country. The intention back then was to play down any kind of China threat to prevent coalitions forming against China. This has changed. Uh, it is now much more about promoting rather than downplaying Chinese strengths and concealing rather than highlighting Chinese vulnerabilities. This includes overstating rather than understating the expansiveness of economic plans such as the Belt and Road and Made in China 2025. Now, domestically, uh, the intention was undoubtedly to strengthen Xi's standing and prestige. Externally, the intention, in, in seems to me, uh, is to make the case for the inevitability of Chinese success and dominance. It's to make the case for the superior wisdom, wisdom and competence of the Communist Party and the authoritarian system, which is, I guess, a smart strategy because this weakens domestic and external uh, will to resist uh, any Chinese policies. So this is the background to the two-part uh, monograph, the second of which uh, is being released today. And... I know you'll want to hear from uh, my other panellists, so I will be brief. I will give you what is necessarily uh, a uh, shallow and glib summary of the argument in the two reports. So the thinking goes something like this. Uh, China can't be the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific without sustained economic growth. Given the lack of institutional and economic reform, the only reliable or the main way Beijing has of maintaining adequate growth is to support its companies with cheap credit. But the rise in Chinese corporate debt since 2008-2009 uh, has been one of the largest and most rapid uh, in economic history over that period of time in relative and absolute terms. More and more economic resources and new credit is being used to manage existing debt 
which was a situation which occurred in Japan in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, China cannot significantly deleverage without drastic changes to its political economy. The current model largely involves offering state-owned enterprises and national champions and other preferred firms, uh, such as Huawei, cheap finance, uh, privileged domestic market access, uh, more credit and generous subsidies at the expense of a far more efficient uh, independent private sector in the country. The Chinese domestic economy is slowing because of chronic overinvestment and the rewarding of inefficient firms rather than allowing what uh, we call creative destruction to occur. In other words, it's very much dependent on adding more inputs, labour and capital, rather than using inputs uh, more efficiently or productively. Now, this brings us to the economic rationale uh, behind China-centric plans such as the Belt and Road uh, Initiative and Made in China 2025, which, of course, has uh, significant strategic consequences. The Belt and Road uh, began as a scheme to export excess capacity and lock in new regional markets for Chinese firms, uh, especially those involved in construction, uh, industrial products, infrastructure and related services. Uh, it, uh, the Belt and Road also was a plan to help the development of the landlocked western provinces and regions in China. Made in China 2025 is, uh, you could call it, a new export-orientated approach based on dominating increasingly important sectors uh, and future advanced and high-technology sectors uh, in global markets. Now, in both cases, they are attempts to create external commercial opportunities uh, for largely protected and unreformed Chinese firms without the need to reform the country's economic or political institutions. Now, General Secretary Xi uh, believes doubling down on this approach offers the party the best prospects to retain its hold on power uh, because it allows the party the prospect of retaining its uh, hands on uh, the economic levers of the country. Uh, as with virtually all major economic developments in China, the party soaks up the praise when things go well and will wear the blame invariably if things don't go so well. For the Chairman Xi, who's known widely as a chairman of everything, the pressure presumably would be acute. His success depends on preventing the emergence of a genuinely independent and powerful middle class, uh, which led to uh, political reform in uh, other Northeast Asian countries like Taiwan, uh, South Korea and Japan. Uh, the problem for China, in my view, is that its economic approach is designed to permanently forestall reform, uh, which China's own economists are asking for. Less deserving companies continue to receive the lion's share of finance and opportunity, which means the misallocation of capital uh, gets worse. This makes debt even more difficult and expensive to manage. Because allocation of opportunity is political, uh, the private sector and therefore household income will continue to remain artificially suppressed 
uh, putting even more pressure on Beijing to stimulate growth through further credit expansion. This brings me to the main intention uh, of uh, producing the two reports that I did. Uh, it is clear that there are fundamental aspects of the Communist Party's economic, industrial and security policies uh, that are diametrically opposed to American interests uh, and values and opposed to those of my country, Australia. Uh, in coming up with effective policy responses, uh, it is clear to me that there are some dominant narratives and assumptions at play uh, which ought to be challenged, but they have to be challenged through the use of evidence and not just more rhetoric. Uh, I would point to four narratives which are commonly assumed but rarely contested and which I believe play into the hands of the Communist Party. The first narrative is that the external policies of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party begin from a position of unprecedented strength and national resilience with few domestic vulnerabilities. My counterpoint is that this is quite the opposite. Uh, Xi and, Com and the Communist Party is engaged in a high-risk, high-cost approach to pursuing uh, the growth of Chinese ambitions abroad whilst uh, concealing significant vulnerabilities within China. The second dominant narrative, that there is a unique economic and governance competence that you have to attribute to the Chinese Communist Party uh, compared to what we see as the chaos and dysfunction of uh, liberal democracies such as the United States. For example, the argument is made that China has proven time and time and again the ability to just sail through financial crises or predictions of financial crises. I argue that the Communist Party and its authoritarian model uh, shows a stubborn inability to learn from past errors uh, and an unwillingness to, to address uh, serious problems. The third narrative is that China does not need the United States or other advanced economies to achieve its objectives. China is already sufficiently large and sophisticated and powerful enough to achieve a terrifying self-sufficiency. My argument is that China cannot achieve its objective its external objectives, including its economic objectives, without the cooperation of the United States and other major advanced economies. This is despite its economic size and its economic tools and levers, given its size uh, in the world, are to some extent surprisingly uh, weak. This includes China's continuing reliance on technological and innovation inputs and imports from advanced economies and the downsides of a still largely closed capital account, which inhibits the attractiveness of its capital markets uh, and inhibits the internationalisation of its uh, RMB currency. The latter point causes China to be far more reliant on the US dollar uh, than it would like to be. And even the resilience of its domestic economy is enormously vulnerable to American policies. The fourth narrative is that the United States and other countries uh, have very little ability to influence domestic Chinese politics, especially when it comes to challenging Xi's authority or some of Xi's policies. My counterpoint is that Xi's high-risk tolerance approach 
is causing immense internal angst. The more actual or perceived failures for China and the greater the rise in international resistance attributed to Xi's actions, the more pressure he will feel to retreat and to take a more cautious approach. Essentially, I'm making the argument that China is deterrable. Now, I don't downplay or underrate China. This is not a China will collapse thesis that I'm advocating. Uh, China, in my view, is the most formidable and comprehensive challenge facing the United States and Australia. Uh, and the challenge is complicated by the fact that China is an indispensable uh, economic partner to us and to many of the world's uh, economies. And we need Beijing's cooperation on many matters. Uh, but I think the point is that responding well to China means understanding its strengths and weaknesses and how these drive both the Communist Party's policies and behaviour. Essentially, I'm trying to uh, do what Deng Xiaoping asked his countrymen to do, uh, which is to seek truth from facts. Uh, let me end by offering a few words about American economic policy towards China. Uh, when I was in government, I spent half my time uh, when the Obama administration was in power and the other half when the Trump administration was in power. Now, what I'm about to say isn't political commentary. It is policy commentary based on my observations from um, the very heart of uh, an allied government in a region. Both the Obama and Trump administrations considered many of the economic plans and practices of China damaging to the United States and to the global economy. The main difference, it seems to me, is that the Obama administration wanted Chinese cooperation on other issues, such as climate change, more than it wanted to confront Chinese behaviour. Uh, moreover, psychologically, and, both, and, and also from a policy perspective, the Obama administration was far less tolerant of disruption, unknown consequences, and admonishment from Chinese trading partners like Australia, who sim similarly did not want disruption or unknown consequences. Uh, perhaps most significant of all, I received the sense that the Obama administration did not think China's behaviour could be changed, that China was deterrable. Uh, this could be because it underestimated American and other leverage, or else overestimated China's leverage, or both. Uh, the current White House is quite the opposite uh, to these mindsets. Its approach is to put pressure on China before seeking a negotiation. In my view, and from my personal interactions with many uh, current senior officials in the administration, it has a much more accurate perspective of American leverage and Chinese vulnerabilities. They do not think that the cause is hopeless. It hasn't given in to a self-defeating fatalism, which I was detecting in, pre in the previous administration. Uh, the current administration has shown that China can be put under pressure and that there are options uh, to do that to achieve certain outcomes. I think where the current administration could do better is with its uh, institutional mindset. And here I speak as someone who is... Uh, from an American ally, but from a smaller country which isn't a superpower and doesn't have a population large enough 
to rely on our domestic market for our growth. Uh, the current administration needs a more credible vision of an, of an institutional outcome to problems, especially when confronting China economically. Now, it could be a model of WTO reform, or if that's unlikely, which is probably the case, parallel institutions. Or it could be multilateral agreements which either include or exclude China, such as um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, the United States pulling out of the TPP, uh, I think, is the biggest mistake it has made when it comes to regional policy. Uh, we need to be on the same page when it comes to critical supply chain uh, uh, disentanglement and the creation of non-Chinese alternatives. And I know this is starting to occur with things like 5G. Uh, more generally, smaller nations and allies need an element of predictability when it comes to American leadership and intended strategic outcomes, even if tactics have to be necessarily fluid and adaptive uh, to keep uh, China off balance uh, as needed in any negotiation. Uh, now, there are no easy or elegant solutions when it comes to dealing with China, the point is to cooperate uh, where we can and compete where we must. Uh, looking past lazy or untested narratives and getting a better idea of uh, Chinese strengths and weaknesses is a good way to start. Uh, and this was the reason I released the reports. Uh, now, thank you. I will, uh, I will end. I'll pause and uh, I'll, I look forward to the engagement with uh, my panellists and, and the audience. Thank you. Thanks, John, for that, that overview. Now we're going to um, have some commentary from uh, our panelists. Uh, and I'm very pleased to, to be able to have uh, first Nick Lardy, uh, who is the uh, Anthony Solomon Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Um, prior to joining Peterson, uh, he was at the Brookings Institution, the University of Washington, where he directed the Henry Jackson School of International Studies. Nick is undoubtedly one of the world's leading experts on the Chinese economy. His most recent book, The State Strikes Back, The End of Economic Reform in China, with a question mark, chronicles the return to uh, dominance in, in China of state-owned enterprises under President Xi and the impact on the Chinese economy. By my count, uh, Nick has uh, written at least six other books on the Chinese economy. He's thus perfectly placed to add insight to our discussion today. Our second panelist, um, Pat Cronin, Patrick Cronin, is the Asia-Pacific Chair here at the Hudson Institute. His wide-ranging interests focus on the challenges and opportunities confronting the United States throughout the Asia-Pacific uh, and the South Asian regions. Some of his previous positions include research at the Center for the New American Security, uh, London's Inter International Institute for Strategic, Strategic Studies, the National Defense University, the U.S. Institute of Peace, Georgetown, John Hop Johns Hopkins, and the University of Virginia. In 2001, Dr. Cronin uh, was confirmed by the Senate 
uh, to the third ranking position at the U.S. Agency for International Development as Assistant Secretary for Policy and Program Coordination. Uh, Patrick uh, holds a doctorate and an MA from Oxford and a BA from uh, the University of Florida. He's written widely for three decades or more on the security-related issues in his areas of expertise. So I'm going to turn first to Nick for a few opening remarks, then Patrick, then we will go into a back and forth here on the panel. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. I'm delighted to have a chance to comment on these two reports, which I had a chance to read over the last couple of weeks. And um, I'm going to talk about some things that John didn't have time to go into detail and some things uh, reinforcing what he says. Now, as he pointed out, I think his initial argument in the first part of the first study is that China's economy has major, major structural problems. Its growth slowdown is permanent. It has poured too many resources into unproductive and commercially irrational projects. Uh, its debt has risen at a precarious speed to dangerous levels. It faces uh, a fiscal crisis, and local government financing vehicles, which have been an important source of growth, are basically uh, insolvent. They're issuing new debt to manage their old debt rather than to undertake a lot of new projects. And finally, of course, he emphasizes that China is a Leninist political economy using all the economic, uh, tools of economic power to further the dominance of the party. Now, I agree with most of this, although some of it may be slightly overstated. We could, I don't want to argue about some details. I think one shortcoming, however, is the fact that it does not give specific or explicit recognition of the fact that China's efforts to slow down the growth of credit since 2017 have met with some success. In other words, we had this extraordinarily rapid ramp up of debt to GDP, which uh, John does demonstrate. But since 2017, it has kind of almost plateaued off. And so debt to GDP is no longer rising so rapidly. There's a little variation from quarter to quarter. But it looks like a very different uh, trajectory than uh, the previous uh, six or seven uh, years. So they've made some progress in this domain, although I don't want to overstate it. <clears throat> the second parts of the report and the second report go on to talk about Made in China 2025, which John argues will give China control over and the dominance of an entire manufacturing process and supply chains in 10 critical sectors. And we all know what they are because we've talked about this uh, so much. His hypothesis seems to be that Made in China 2025 will solve or at least alleviate many of China's current economic problems. So the Made in China 2025 is what he calls a grand strategy to overcome uh, the problems and to gain global preeminence. I have a little bit of a trouble with this, you know, seeing Made in China 2025 as uh, a solution to uh, the problems. And I think John does, too. In his opening remarks, he talked about how Xi Jinping favors the continued buildup of state companies uh, which he has characterized in the study as a massive misallocation of capital, which I tend to agree on. So <clears throat> I'm a little unclear how an economy that has all these major structural problems is going to use Made in China 2025, which is another top-down state-driven strategy, to deal with the economic uh, problems that have accumulated, uh, primarily since the global uh, financial crisis. The second thing I want to say a little bit about, which I don't think John talked about very much, he has a whole series of policy uh, recommendations to exploit 
China's technological weakness and its dependence on technology inflows. We should block the uh, access uh, of U.S. technology companies. We should block science and technology cooperation with China. We should restrict the issuance of visas to Chinese students who are studying in sensitive areas. We should prohibit exports to China of certain parts and uh, products and components. And we should revise U.S. government procurement strategy to prohibit the use of components and parts with value added from China. Now, my problem with this is that there's not much, if any, discussion of what such policies would cost the United States. I think there is a body of research that suggests the United States, because it has strong local research, uh, is a major beneficiary of international collaboration in basic scientific research. The US-China tie is extremely strong. It's the second strongest in the world. And I fear that blocking science and technology cooperation between the China and the United States could be more costly to the United States than it would be to China. Now, you may decide it's a good policy anyway, if, if that were the case. But I think at least we have to begin to have a serious discussion about whether that's true and to what extent. Certainly, from public uh, reports, we read that even a few <coughs> senior Pentagon officials believe that a decoupling of technology between China and the United States would have such an adverse effect on US leading US technology firms that it would impair the ability of these firms to supply advanced technology to, to US uh, military forces. I'm not saying whether I agree with that or disagree with that. I'm just saying some people think that this is a risk. Um, uh, another comment I have is there's not much, um, no, let me go further. I don't think there's any discussion about what the US should do proactively to maintain our technological lead. It's more the discussion and focuses primarily, if not exclusively, on what we can do to slow down China. And I think you know we do need to take into account that federal R&D expenditures as a share of DEP have fallen by 2 thirds uh, since the 1970s. Um, Trump, a year ago, signed an executive order establishing an American artificial intelligence initiative but it provided no new sources of funding uh, to make that initi initiative successful. I'm very struck by a recent uh, task force report from the Council on Foreign Relations, which has the title Innovation and National Security. It has a whole set of comprehensive recommendations of how the United States can strengthen its technological lead. And I, so you know, maybe we need to slow down China a little bit, but I think the more important thing is to take and adopt policies would allow the US to maintain its lead. Finally, I want to say something about oh, uh, John's argument that we have a lot of influence over China and we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be afraid to exercise it and contrast Trump with Obama. I'm not so sure that we have such an unmatched ability to compel China or other states through threats and punishments. I don't think we exactly had a roaring success in the South China Sea trying to deter China's actions there. I'm not a strategic specialist. Maybe Pat will comment on this. But there are a lot of people, or at least a few people, who have said, game over. We've lost. China won. We were not able to change their behavior in the South China Sea. And again, since unprecedented pressure was placed on the UK to not use Huawei technology, they're going ahead and using it anyway. Germany is likely to follow. And so I'm not so sure we have such strong levers to um, get other countries to uh, accommodate our needs. 
Then I want to make one final comment on the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, John describes the Belt and Road Initiative primarily as a way of finding external avenues of economic growth while, as he correctly points out, resisting domestic economic reforms. So, it's, so as he said in his remarks, it's a potential solution to overcapacity in many domestic industries, and it's a policy to keep money-losing state-owned companies uh, afloat. I have been, this is a very common hypothesis, John's uh, got lots of company in suggesting that this is one of the motivations for the Belt and Road Initiative, um, but if you look at the numbers, I don't think it really uh, is an adequate explanation of Belt and Road. Uh, Lee quotes the Morgan Stanley study that estimates the scale of investment undertaken in Belt and Road projects is about $200 billion to date. And they'll be by 2027, it'll be 1.2 to 1.3 trillion, which seems like a bit. But given that the project started you know, several years ago, that's going to mean that the average annual investment uh, is going to be something in the neighborhood of about $100 billion a year. But keep in mind, China's a $14 trillion economy. The share of investment has moderated slightly in recent years, but it's still uh, a bit over 40%. So that means domestic investment in China in 2019 was about 5.5 trillion US dollars. If the Chinese economy continues to grow, but at a much lower rate, and the investment rate comes down, I think investment in absolute terms by 2027 might be running at about 7 trillion. So average investment between now and 2027 would be about $6 trillion a year. So an extra $100 billion in an in a investment program of $6 trillion isn't going to rescue very many uh, state-owned companies from their money-losing position. It's not going to add enough to aggregate demand. Uh, so I fall back on the idea, and again, I'm not an expert, but I think the Belt and Road is primarily a geostrategic initiative. It's not an initiative that's designed to help the domestic uh, Chinese economy. And just to reiterate my earlier point, I don't think Made in China 2025 is likely to effectively serve as a grand strategy, that's John's phrase, to overcome its domestic economic uh, vulnerabilities. Thank you, Nick. Um, Patrick? Um, thank you, Tom. I think I'll just yeah, stay fine, seated fine. here, and because uh, I know we'll jump into the discussion. Uh, great comments. First of all, I just want to congratulate John Lee on really uh, two excellent reports, um, and you really should read them. Uh, both are available online uh, if you don't get a hard copy. And of course, uh, I always listen to what Nicholas Lardy has to say, even if I don't agree with him. Um, I think what we're partly engaged in here in Washington, and even, and I include, you know, our strand allies in that discussion. Um, is a continued uh, search for how to fuse our own economic and security policies uh, as we face a rising China or a China that's plateauing and maybe not rising uh, as fast in the future. I think that's, uh, that is indeed one of the big signal challenges that we face, and I, I don't think we have the answers on that. You can see the nuanced uh, sort of points that, that Nicholas Lardy was making um, that uh, will, I'm sure John will have answers to, but at the same time, that's part of the give and take we need, I think, to come up with an incredible fusion. I just wanted to make three points uh, um, from a more uh, strategic uh, perspective here. Um, the first of is which is, 
we can't really foresee <laughs> the economic future of China uh, for the long term, um, or at least we should be agnostic about it uh, from my perspective. So when I read uh, The State Strikes Back, an excellent, splendid little novel, you know, book, not novel, book, uh, for those of us who like to dabble in economics, not, not focus on it full time, short books are better than long books. Um, and in that book, uh, Nicholas Hardy makes it clear that there's nothing predetermined about China's economic trajectory. Uh, John doesn't say that. John's, though, raising uh, real questions about that China's not immune to the laws of economics or physics. You know, what goes up must come down. Um, there's, there's clearly uh, the, the welter of problems of misallocation of capital and structural problems that are deep-seated in debt that have been cited already and that are in the, the reports. Um, and we can see now with the coronavirus, as well as with the global financial crisis, there are these uh, other external events and black swans that uh, nobody can pr predict what will happen uh, in the future. But, but we did see this so-called gray rhino coming. That is, the, this, the Chinese Communist Party saw this gray rhino coming of a slowing uh, demographic pattern in China, for instance, in, in the challenges that we're facing. So this is not really a big surprise even for the Chinese leadership. They, they've been grappling with this, and as Nick was suggesting, they've been trying to make some adjustments, but not the adjustments that would, would challenge the party's leadership, that fundamentally challenge the political authority of the Communist Party. And that's, that's the big challenge for China, whether they can get enough reform without really reforming. Um, and, and there are legitimate questions, and we should continue to be agnostic, I think, about the future of the Chinese economy. I'm ready for all contingencies of whether China's going. Um, the second point is that if China's economy is uh, plateauing or even lagging, uh, slowing in growth, um, I can find many problems with my own country's economy. Um, and so while we have, you know, the Trump economy is going well for the moment, um, the structural challenges for the United States are, uh, you know, still, unst you know, unstintingly large. Um, when you think about our own uh, challenges with debt and the baby boom generation uh, retirement and the, and the pensions that are looming. Uh, we think about our own debt uh, and our own infrastructure and education, the R&D issue, um, it, the, the, the erosion of the post-World War II order and the alliance network. All of those are major uh, challenges. They can be, they can be addressed uh, just as China can start to address their problems. All I'm saying is that on the other side of that ledger, there is another uh, country. So it's the old joke about you know, trying to outrun a bear, you only have to outrun the other guy, not the bear. And so if China's outrunning the United States over this next decade, you know, they, they can at least stand on top of that global economy uh, as they look out to mid-century in their China dream. Um, now, third and finally, I just want to get to the, uh, you know, the thrust of the recommendations and, the, and, and just the, the excellent um, sort of spotlight on China's vulnerabilities. I think this is very important. It's a, it's a great corrective to the assumptions that you know, John and I hear often in, in conferences in the region and around, uh, around the world. Um, and yet there's, there's no doubt that while you know, China is a bit unstoppable in the South China Sea, China has uh, bullied uh, all of the claimant states, even this past year when China doesn't need to. Uh, it's pushed its way into Vanguard Bank, which is, you know, if you, if you look at the exclusive economic zone of China wrapping around the, uh, Asia, and then you look at the exclusive economic zone Vietnam, Vanguard Bank is at the bottom of Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. And yet that's where China chose to push Vietnam around this past year after harassing the Philippines, swarming boats, challenging their fishermen in Philippine economic order. And that's when you've got Rodrigo Duterte kowtowing to you already. 
Um, and then they go into Malaysia, unnecessary. Mahathir was looking to you know, repackage the bargains with China. They, they, they introduced uh, sort of new challenges and survey ships in Malaysia. And then they take on Indonesia, which is not even a claimant state. But they sent extra fishing uh, vessels into the exclusive economic zone around the Natuna Islands, very sensitive area for Indonesia. All of these things were unnecessary, kind of unforced, but China can't help itself. It's trying to impose its sort of claims on historic rights uh, over this vast swath of the South China Sea. And that, that does mobilize others around it. And, and everybody is skeptical. And yet, if you look at this new poll that came out of Singapore, which is the most authoritative thing we have, it's the second year running, the IC's poll, of elite opinion in the 10 Southeast Asian countries. Push come to shove, if the Southeast Asian elites were asked to choose between China and the United States, seven out of 10 said they would choose China. And that's because they see the Chinese economic future, <laughs> the connectivity. Uh, and that's a point, that China doesn't have to win globally here to have a bigger imprint in the region, in the Asia Pacific. And that's one of the challenges. That's where, so, but the recommendations that John makes, insisting on reciprocity, absolutely spot on. Erecting high-tech barriers, yeah, we have to look at the cost, but absolutely the right idea. There's a great paper out of IFRI by John Seaman, a King's College professor, uh, was in IFRI last week, uh, on uh, why s standards are so important here. I mean, and he you know, quotes the popular saying in China that third-tier companies make products, second-tier companies make technology, first-tier companies make standards. So there's a lot of competition going on in areas that are not the usual Washington uh, debate. Uh, and then finally, countering uh, the Belt and Road Initiative um, and things like the Blue Dot Initiative, which has kind of put a, a good housekeeping uh, seal uh, approval on, on transparent and high standard uh, development is a good thing to do. But we need a positive game. This is my last point. We need, as you know, Nick said, we need to be proactive, mentioned R&D, but we need much more on the positive side. And, and there I agree with John today about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know, last week I hosted Randy Shriver, and Randy, now out of office, said, if we made one mistake, you know, we did uh, repeal without replace when it came to our trade policy in the region. And, it, and we're trying to recover from that sort of step. And that's where, again, China, relative to the United States, has still got a lot of advantages despite slowing down uh, the rate of growth, despite uh, having lots of internal challenges. So I'll stop there. Great reports, great comments. Look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Tom. Okay, thank you. Thank both of you for your thoughtful comments. Um, John, would you like to uh, respond uh, to? Yeah, I'll make a couple of responses. Um, first, first, a technical one on the Chinese debt. Nick's right. China has slowed its credit growth. That's the point I'm making, that it doesn't defy the laws of economics. China cannot defy the laws of economics. China is slowing because it's got to deal with these sorts of problems. And, that's the point I'm making about the, um, the, the notion that, that China's economy will rise in a way that will consume all. I'm saying it won't. Right? I don't know where it will be in five or 10 years' time. But if you look at its structural issues, its capacity to grow in a way it needs to grow isn't there anymore. So that, that's the first point. Um, a couple of other points. On the Belt and Road, I'm, I'm not sure I disagree with Nick, or I should say I'm not sure Nick Nick disagrees with me, because the argument isn't that the Belt and Road will solve China's problems. The argument is just it's a couple of things. One, the Belt and Road is partially there to solve the excess capacity problems, or at least alleviate them. But the more important point that I'm trying to make in the report, perhaps not clear, clearly enough, is 
if you spend any time in my region at all, you will hear that the Belt and Road is an all-conquering monster that cannot be confronted or resisted. I'm making the opposite point, that it can, because China's capacity to actually achieve what it wants through the Belt and Road is partially uh, based on um, real material uh, uh, aspects, but it's very also largely based on bluff. Right? It is essentially trying to get other countries to sign on to a series of agreements and standards uh, and arrangements that suit China and fund a lot of those arrangements, even though they suit China rather than the countries. So what, perhaps I'm speaking more from a person from that region rather than an American, um, if you spend any time in my region, the narrative that the Belt and Road um, is as grand as China says, can be funded in a way that China says, um, and, and that there, it is, there is no point in resisting that kind of uh, grand policy is dominant. So the report was partly written to sort of say, this is one of the reasons why China had the Belt and Road. It's rewrapped it into a grand plan or grand strategy. But here, the problems with the Belt and Road, and there are definite ways to counter it. We don't have to match everything dollar dollar or be everywhere China is, but there are certain definite ways we can counter the effects of the Belt and Road on us. The, the final things about costs, um, which was raised both by Patrick and, and, and Nick in different ways. For example, um, I, I do talk about technological disentanglement in some areas. Of course there'll be costs, but I think we've got to get around this idea that there are cost-free options with China now. We are engaged in a competition with China or China was in, has always seen itself as being engaged in a competition with United States and allies, and the technological aspect is a major part of that. If we want a cost-free strategy, we lose, right, because there is no such thing. And in fact, China has gained, whether it be in, in its technological advances in terms of the use of foreign innovation, or in the South China Sea, because for too long we have wanted a cost-free strategy. We have ignored the actual cost we're paying, uh, and we have for too long wanted a cost-free strategy that comes from disruptive counteraction. So the point I'm making is that we do need to have this disruptive counteraction. Yes, we do need to replace, not just repeal, but we do need the mindset of countering and to bear the cost of doing so, because the costs of not doing so, which are often neglected, uh, are quite considerable. Okay, thanks, John. Um, Nick, I want to sort of put you on the spot. You you um, uh, subtly criticized uh, John for suggesting that Belt and Road in um, the Made in China 2025 program were going to be effective in addressing um, China's problems. And um, you've spent a good chunk of your recent career um, cataloging um, some of the problems that China has, including the debt problems. And you mentioned in your remarks uh, the specific debt problem of local government debt and the uh, off-book uh, financing authorities that they've, they've used. So do you, uh, do you have some alternative ideas about how China is really going to address 
uh, these problems, especially the debt problem. I mean, um, John put the estimated total debt in China, public-private, at 300% of GDP. Um, Herb Stein's famous <laughs> law that something that can't go on forever won't seems to apply here, but we don't really we don't really know, as uh, Patrick indicated. But what? How is China going to solve, for instance, the local government debt problem when they're being asked to increase their uh, contributions to social programs such as health care um, and pensions, which are way underfunded in, in, in China? Do you have thoughts on, on where China can effectively address these, how they can effectively address these problems? Well, I think... Um, you know, John and I are in a pretty strong agreement that one of the major problems China faces is a misallocation of resources, a massive misallocation of resources that started shortly after Xi Jinping uh, came in, and he started talking about making state companies bigger, and so they took a lot of the firms under SASIC, this central organization, and merged them together. Uh, the, the reality is that state-owned companies, uh, the return on assets since the global financial crisis has fallen by half, and the assets that these state companies have have been growing much more rapidly than GDP. Uh, at the end of uh, 18, they were more than twice GDP. You know, 230% of GDP was the magnitude of the assets controlled by these state-owned companies. 40% of them are losing money, and that's enough to drag down the average returns to roughly 2%. So one of the ways, the only way they're going to uh, start to grow more productively is to have uh, much more widespread bankruptcy of underperforming companies, uh, which would allow the assets of those companies to be auctioned off, go into the hands of companies that could make better use of them, uh, much more uh, extensive use of merger and acquisition activity. I know M&A kind of has a bad odor in certain circles in the United States. <laughs> uh, but I think in China, it could, uh, again, lead to the reallocation of assets to companies that could use them more efficiently. Uh, so, you know, I think it was Martin Wolf, who a number of years ago wrote the column, it's not surprising that China's growing at 8%, given how much they're investing. It's surprising how slow they're growing. And that comment has even greater relevance today. So I think if you move to a system that gradually reduced the excessive claim of state companies on China's resources, <coughs> you would have, you would have, the, you could get assets into the hands of companies that would use them more efficiently, you could grow much more rapidly than the current 6% or even less, and you would have a, a stronger fiscal system, you would have more resources to deal with the social problems that you mentioned, uh, and coming up with a, a very substantial, you know, a, a very substantial contribution to the pension problem, which is looming, you know, it's not a crisis this year or next, but five, ten years down the road, um, when you know the number of retirees, I mean, the working age population is already shrinking, but the number of uh, workers per retiree will diminish substantially, starting in about ten years. So, e efficient use of resources is uh, is the answer. But I'm very pessimistic about this because Xi Jinping does not seem to be interested in uh, doing anything that would diminish the size or the importance of the state sector. And um, 
you know, the programs that they've dusted off to try to reform state-owned companies, some of them have been in the works for 20 years and haven't worked. So I, I'm not very optimistic. So my view is, apart from you know, the phase one deal with the US, uh, you know, that might have, I don't think that would have given the economy much of a boost. Uh, I think they were at risk of slowing down more even before the coronavirus came along. So in terms of headline GDP growth, I'm, I'm on the pessimistic side. Uh, until we see a willingness to deal with their underlying uh, misallocation of resources. Okay. As a, <clears throat> as a non-economist, I'm somewhat amused to see in, in recent years a uh, increasing uh, uh, commentary by economists on the value of a narrative and how narratives tend to... Uh, affect uh, financial markets especially. Robert Schiller has made this famous in uh, the last couple of years. I wonder if um, any of you would like to comment on the, the coronavirus problem, um, because that seems to undermine this uh, narrative in China that they're, they have created a system which is capable of managing the many problems that modern states face. And they've tried to export this idea fairly aggressively and using that argument of sort of inevitability and competence. Um, does the coronavirus and other problems, such as we've talked about, the slowdown in the economy, the accumulation of debt, is that undermining that, that uh, sort of uh, uh, heroic uh, narrative that they've tried to use to um, win friends and uh, influence throughout uh, throughout the world. Tom, happy to start at least that discussion. I mean, I, I do think it's uh, a great question when you think about the desire of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party to control information so absolutely, and yet how that doesn't guarantee that you're going to use it well. So the idea that they had a party meeting, they knew the problem was coming in early January, the folks in Wuhan were continuing to say there was no human-to-human -human transmission afterward, they, they bungled the information flow. Um, and it causes questions. However, it's the Communist Party of China. They're not going anywhere. So the party's not over, CCP. Xi Jinping may be short-lived in terms of his position. Maybe he will face pressure for in, in 2022 and so on. So we don't know where that will go. But I do think um, it's just a reminder that just because you have uh, so much information superiority doesn't mean you can use it to effect. And it's really the strategic effect that we're talking about with the economy, with information, with technology. That's, that's what's called into question. Um, and uh, you know, the coronavirus really does, uh, I think, sow doubt in the region about how much you want to trust uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and at the same time, everybody's open for business, and President Trump's open for business. I think he was out tweeting this morning, we're open for business, I want everybody to know. Um, so everybody still wants to do business with China, but they're not necessarily going to trust the statistics or the data, or they're going to you know, look, look to verify. And I think that's, uh, that's the price of, of dealing with China right now, that there's, there's a question. But everybody has question marks. It's not like China's unique. They just have a unique set of questions. I, I, uh, I spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia, and you know, this is where the narrative comes in. And a narrative of China is that they can build a hospital in 10 days. Look how great they are. 
They can build a bridge in one-tenth of the time that Americans build a bridge. So the narrative has been, because of the pure material and technical competence of the Chinese, that will allow them to rule. I think what the coronavirus has done is brought the conversation back away from just technical competence to political science or civil society or the way countries or polities are structured. And the reason why coronavirus is the way it is is because of the Chinese authoritarian system, that in the initial phases there were, and in a closed society, um, there was more of an emphasis on controlling message and suppressing dissent than there was on getting information out there and stopping this virus from spreading. That I, I've been in Southeast Asia both on holiday and work uh, for the last three months or so. That's actually had quite a profound effect on um, common views of China. I mean, it's not going to change everything tomorrow, but it's causing people to ask deeper questions about what makes a great power, what provides regional leadership, what does the nature of trust and institutions actually mean. I, th I think that's a good conversation. I'm not, I'm not taking delight in the spread of this virus, but I'm saying it is changing the conversation into, I think, a broader one. Um, just to pursue this one step further, do um, Nick, either you or John or Patrick, like to comment or, and speculate on how much the slowdown, economic slowdown in China will be accelerated by the, this epidemic? Well, I think uh, the first part of any answer to that question is we don't know for sure. Uh, we don't know how long uh, the virus will continue to spread. We, you know, the number of confirmed cases uh, has now been going down for almost two weeks, uh, which is a positive sign, but it's not dispositive. So uh, I, that's, I think that's the main uncertainty. Even if uh, the virus seems to be coming under control sometime over the you know, remaining part of this month, I, I, think, I think GDP growth in the first quarter, I used to think it would only go down to 5%, but I think now they'll be lucky to get to 4%. And so it's not just the virus, obviously. It's the, you know, the transportation. You, you know, we have very high-frequency data. You can get data on the number of people traveling on the rail system or on the roads on a day-by-day -day basis and compare it with the day before or the year before. And the, the most recent readings are that traffic is about 20% of what it was a year ago. So clearly... Not everyone's rushing back or is able to rush back to their hometowns to get to get back to work. So I think, uh, you know, even if the virus is brought under control, uh, it's going to be a while before most firms are up and running at anything near capacity. So um, that's that's anyway my view of the economic hit has been going up uh, the last week or so. You know, Tom, it is too early to say, but, you know, the expectation now epidemiologically is that this is starting to plateau. And if that's the case, then you could probably look at the first two quarters of 2020 being really bad, <laughs> not just for China, but frankly for the region, um, you know, whether it's tourism or Japan's economy or Korea's or Southeast Asian tourism and, and or Apple, you know, all of them are being hurt significantly in the first six months. But I, I would imagine there's going to be a significant recovery in the second half of this year, barring other externalities, or, or unless this becomes a pandemic that we, we're not sure is that, can we, we can rule out, but so far hasn't materialized outside of China the way that we feared it might over the last month. To make a 
a slightly tangential comment. In, in, in Australia, there's always been this debate about, well, Australia, as many of you have known, have taken a very forward-leaning view on many aspects with respect to China, on Huawei, foreign interference, et cetera. And the public debate in Australia has always been, if we do that, the Chinese will punish us economically, because they've shown in the past they do do that. And the two main ways that China could punish Australia economically and quite easily is to restrict the flow of tourists and restrict students. And both our tourists and, and university markets are heavily dependent on China. Now, the coronavirus has actually done that, right? I mean, we've blocked, we've banned flights from coming in or out of China at the moment. Chinese students are not allowed to come to Australia, and we're talking over a million students here. Um, the point I'm trying to make is I, I think whether it's coronavirus or whether it's, it's because of geopolitics, a country like Australia, and I think much of the world, is now getting used to this situation where things are probably not going to go perfectly smoothly with China um, economically, and there will be disruptions. Once again, I'm, I'm not advocating that I like disruption. What I'm trying to say is I think that's just the kind of world that we live in, um, and it's, it's something we have to have to manage. Yeah, I'm going to ask one more question, then I'm going to turn to the audience. So if you want to prepare your questions. Um, um, John, one of your recommendations is uh, for uh, addressing the Chinese, China challenges uh, to work more closely with allies. You specifically mentioned the Europeans and uh, also focusing on the ASEAN nations. Um, a lot of us have been hard at work for the last several years in, the, in trying to convince the Europeans that China represents a, a, a real security problem and uh, also an economic challenge as well, uh, but haven't had much success. Do you have any ideas about how we can more effectively um, work with our, uh, our allies um, in, in Europe and possibly in the ASEAN nations as well. My, my, my praise and criticism of the Trump administration and the president in particular, but praise is that he's prepared to recognize issues and confront them and try to deal with them, which it's not easy to do for a president. My, critic my criticism, my main criticism, once again, this comes from an ally that works very closely with the United States, is that allies at the moment, we don't know what the institutional intended outcome is of what the administration's doing with the Chinese. So yes, we know that there's been an economic um, war, whatever we want to call it, and a, a you know, fairly modest uh, phase one deal has been signed. But we don't know institutionally where the landing spot is. So even on issues such as intellectual property protection, for example, um, Europeans and the Japanese and the Australians haven't really been consulted as to what kind of institutional outcome or enduring solution we actually want or is realistic or is credible. So that's both my praise and criticism of the current administration, that they, they are confronting issues that previous administrations ignored, in my view. But um, they're not really taking allies along with them because they, they, they're not coming up with what a landing spot would look like that would be of 
um, acceptance to, to, to all allies and partners. Patrick, you were in... I was just in London, last week. Paris, um, but I've also dealt with the head of uh, cybersecurity in Australia in the last several months. In general, the United States needs to be able to anticipate problems further out down the line, not waiting until they're on the headlines. We need to be working with our allies closely on serious, effective alternatives. And so there were effective alternatives identified some time ago. Australia was selling them to the United States, uh, and, and we weren't necessarily putting our money there. Um, when you think about uh, building a network of trusted technology, for instance, to provide an alternative. Um, so we have, to, we have to be engaged with our allies, and we've got to be willing to spend some resources on some effective solutions. We're going to have to make some hard choices, because this is private sector, public sector partnership, and it's going to be complicated. But we do need to manage down the risk much better than allowing and browbeating our allies like the UK, which they deserve to be browbeaten now for making a bad decision. But at the same time, we have to give them something other than that um, as an alternative, too. And they're, they're right about that. Nick, you wanted to comment? Well, I think we just had confirmation that John spent a couple of years working in the diplomatic service of his country. Because <laughs> he said, well, the US hasn't been able to bring along its allies. It's much worse than that. We have alienated most of our allies in multiple dimensions. And I think the chance of getting them to cooperate on any unified strategy to deal with China is vanishingly small. Well, I was <laughs> trying to take an issue at a time. You know, First of all, I mean, strategy is a big issue, you're right. But I mean, 5G, there were there's some alternatives. I mean, the Ericsson, Nokia alternative, had we been willing to put some muscle behind that, not try to buy Ericsson, you know, but to try to work together with others, then that would have provided the UK, as with France, uh, an alternative uh, that is more trusted technology so that you don't have to have your leading think tanks like IISS, where I worked, have your scholars go out and say, oh, this is a great decision on the part of the UK. It's not a cyber threat. It's maybe just this little sabotage problem. Well, first of all, sabotage is not a little problem. It's a major problem. Look at the crypto story out of the Cold War that's come out with CIA. I mean, the United States, if you're able to you know, get into a system, there are lots of ways to, to sabotage uh, information. That's what China's trying to build over the next 70, 80 years, I would submit. And if you want to read more about that, you can see our report, Total Competition, which we published last month. Um, uh, with uh, Ryan Newhart and I published on this information-centric strategy that China's, China's pursuing. Um, it's it's very serious challenge. And that's UK, French, German security officials get it, but the economics don't add up. And that's why, again, we're trying to figure out, can we work to provide alternatives that make sense for both economic and security issues? Because they fuse together. Okay, well, let's let's go to the audience. I believe we have microphones, uh, do we not? Um, and I'd ask for you to uh, give, give your name and your affiliation, if you care to give an affiliation, um, and try to make it a question and not a, uh, uh, a statement. All right, I'm going to go right here in front for the first question. Um, uh, Chris McRae, Norman McRae Foundation. So my father used to work with Herman Kahn in the 70s and 80s, and the idea was how can we use all this wonderful technology to do great things like ending poverty? And as you probably know, two-thirds of humanity are Asian, uh, stuck on the Asian continent. Uh, the British probably trapped them during the you know uh, years of mercantile empires, in that, so 
my, my question to you is, is there any way we could reframe the Bell Road, don't necessarily call it that, but actually map across the whole of continents what they need culturally, uh, technologically, to actually, you know, achieve win-wins. Uh, Joseph Nye says that the whole set of problems to do with sustainability development goals, which most of the under-30s are interested in, require coalitions across borders, not, you know, GDP models within uh, national borders. So that's why I'm wondering if we're missing something in terms of the positive things that could be done if we could somehow recast this to be a, a worldwide um, issue. John, you want to? If, if I understand yeah. the question, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think win-win is a technical or technological issue. It's a political and psychological issue, as in do you want win-win, right? So when the Belt and Road was first, um, was first introduced, as a concept, I know it preceded it, but as a as a coherent concept, it's it's not like the entire region or 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 even American allies instantly just rebuffed it. What we rebuffed was aspects of the Belt and Road which the Chinese intended, which is to um, tie supply networks in a structural way to China. Um, such that China was a major beneficiary, to allow China to define standards which had political and strategic consequences, um, and to allow China political sway over countries which had political and strategic consequences. So to me, you know, in theory, achieving win-win is, is fairly straightforward, as in you, you can work out technically how all sides win, but it's more a political and psychological issue. And unfortunately, that's just foreign affairs. That's just the, the history of, of, of uh, nations, history, the history of man. OK, um, let's go to on the end there. Um. Hi, Mike Mears, um, small business consultant. Uh, John, I have a finance question for you. Uh, after reading your convincing study, it was um, apparent that Hong Kong would be ground zero. Uh, and if that's the case because of the peg to the U.S. currency and so forth, then certainly the financial institutions uh, that are centered there, like HSBC and Standard Charter, um, could have serious difficulties in the future based on everything you've put in your report. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Uh, because that would certainly affect London Stock Exchange and, and other global uh, stock exchanges. I'll, I'll, I'll have a quick response, maybe Nick has a comment as well. Um, so it seems to me that Hong Kong was, was the gateway for Chinese um, finance in and out, right? Because of its capital account, its closed capital account, Hong Kong was the gateway in and out to China. So. In, in my view, Hong Kong was much more important to China than many people realise, and arguably is much more important to China than it is, or it is more important to China than the rest of the world. Um, quickly answer your question. Yeah, I mean, I anecdotally, um, every, ex, every international major financial entity 
is looking for a plan B, right? And, and that is going to be serious for China, um, given the way the current Chinese capital account is, is managed. I mean, that's... I, I, I think it's more a serious issue for China than, I, than it is, I think, for anyone else. Nick, you want to weigh in on that? Oh, okay. Um, yes, sir, right here. Thank you. Uh, my, my name is Da. I'm a Fulbright visiting scholar from China. Now I work in Johns Hopkins University, SAIS. Uh, there is a very dominant point of view in China that uh, it goes like this. The only reason that China was treated as a strategic competitor or challenger to the United States is that China is growing so fast. Because China is going to be the largest world economy, uh, e economy uh, in the near future. So a lot of Chinese believe that this is the only reason that the United States want to bash on China. And if this is the case, I, mean, I said if, no matter what kind of reforms that China is going to take, they were wrong. Because the only reason is that you're developing so fast. So the only uh, uh, solution to this problem is stop developing that fast or the collapse of the Chinese economy. So what do you think of this point of view? Anybody want to? I'll, quick, I'll quickly, and then I'm sure someone else something. Very quickly, I, I think we've, we've got to get our history right. America spent 30, 40 years trying to help China grow quickly, right? If, if, if that narrative is correct in China, why the hell would America have done that? It's pretty stupid of the United States. I mean, I, I think, look, certainly America has switched very quickly and very suddenly. Not well, suddenly, but very quickly. Um, and, yes, that's going to create shocks for the system and for China. Um, but, you know, we've, as I mentioned, America spent 30, 40 years um, if enabling consciously, not just, not just inadvertently, overtly enabling China's rapid growth. So to me, that narrative doesn't quite make sense. Did I remember helping the, uh, the Chinese as they were trying to develop their overseas development assistance, having, I, I helped set up the Millennium Challenge Corporation based on best practices of, of development assistance for the US government. And so the Chinese invited me in to try to help them. I was sort of uh, disenchanted, though, when I saw how the Chinese were trying to look like they were following the high standards of uh, international development, but really pursuing Competition. I mean, John has it in his in his report, saying that we're pursuing cooperation; they're pursuing competition. So there was this. That's why there was this shift about and waking up over the last few years, in particular, about what China's up to. Um, yes, yeah, some want to keep China down, but that's not that's not where that came from. That came from a reaction to feeling like China's exploiting the rules of an open system or systems that were built for market-based economies, and China's uh, taking advantage of that. And there's a backlash to that. Um, but it is also a regular Chinese propaganda point, and I read you know, the Chinese 50 stories a day from out of China, and it's a very common refrain that if, if you don't like what China's doing, if you don't like the fact that they covered up the coronavirus, then you want to keep China down. No, no, we just don't like what you did with the coronavirus. It's not, it's not trying to keep China down. In few cases, yes, it's true, people want to keep China down, but that's not where this came from, as John suggested, and I would suggest that's not the main thrust of policy toward China. Okay, um, let's see. Gentleman here in the second row. 
Hi, Dan Katz, most recently a Senate intern. Um, at the Bell and Road Forum last year, a lot of claims and promises were made about how China was going to improve the Bell and Road Initiative, how they're going to make it greener, more local friendly, basically addressing a lot of the complaints that have been made about it. In the almost a year that has passed since, have you all seen any sort of changes along the lines of China moving towards fulfilling any of those promises or claims that it has made? Well, I'll just make one comment, um, and I don't follow the Belt and Road, so I could be I could be uh, off base. Uh, so listen to what John says. Um, I think the main thing we've seen is a slowdown in new projects. I think one of the things that the Chinese publicly recognized was this problem of, of what other people were calling the debt trap, and so I think they're paying more attention to the sustain, debt sustainability of the projects that they're financing. I shouldn't say they're financing, they're lending money for. Uh, so I would say kind of at a macro level, that's probably, that's the biggest thing that I've seen. Although it's very hard to measure because we don't get accurate data on exactly what the scale of the program is. Uh, my, my only response comes from my conversations quite recently with um, um, Malaysian, Indonesian, Singaporean uh, and Thai trade representatives, negotiators, and politicians, ministers, etc., who've dealt with this. And what they've said is China has become very sensitive to um, the debt trap accusation, and they have become a bit more more flexible about how how things are, how how the loans are structured. So they have responded in that sense. Now, now for me, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't really advocate. For me, that's good. I don't really advocate just opposing the Belt and Road. I advocate opposing the way terms, certain terms, are written into agreements. Now, if China is showing a capacity to adapt, you know, on, on this particular issue, fine. No, I, I think still think there's a broader there's the deeper issue of there are clear strategic um, motivations to the Belt and Road. There are clear sort of political elite capture motivations to Belt and Road. Those sorts of things are very hard to dislodge. But at a sort of technical, um, um, tactical level, I do think the Chinese have adjusted a little bit to make terms you know, somewhat more agreeable, particularly on the financial side of things. Transparency is helping. Okay, let's go to the gentleman in the front row. All right, uh, Cliff Lee with Asian GOP and also um, the new organization uh, Reclaim American Education. And uh, I think that was one key issue haven't been talked about a lot is about the the competitiveness actually between in our K-12 schools compared to also, I mean, I don't want to make it like a competition between kids. However, I think it's, 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 it's almost like a common sense. Eventually, the competition will be won by this K-12 school, by the kids, how productive they will be eventually. So will this be studied more intensely, how to make our school more of a merit-based system and also getting our kids be more competitive in the future on the future market. Anybody want to tackle that one? 
I should let the Americans answer this. Yeah, I mean, well, for me, I, I mean, <laughs> I come from a family of educators. We're fully committed. I mean, I agree with you in general. That, yes, we need to have a merit-based, high-quality public education system for America. My wife and I both went to public schools, um, you know, growing up, and we both went to Oxford and, you know, went, went on to achieve things. Uh, even through our public school education, I'd love to make sure that the growing inequality in our country is not eroding that, but we're able to put that together, but not in a way that Bernie Sanders has in mind, but in a way that allows for um, market-based system and for people of all political parties to come together and try to figure out how do we make sure that the next generation is able to meet these challenges, because there are immense challenges, but I'm optimistic they will be able to meet them, but we need to keep giving them the best possible education poss you know, to, to make sure that they have a chance to meet these challenges. Okay, maybe um, time for one more question. Um, we'll go to this side, gentleman in the back. I'm Akihiro Furuso, the visiting fellow to the Stimson. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Uh, I'm the visiting fellow to the Stimson Center. Stimson Center. Uh, yes. Okay. And my question is about the uh, relation between the road and uh, Belt and Road Initiative of the Beijing and the free and open Indo-Pacific proposed by Japan and the U.S. Uh, my understanding is the purpose of free and open Indo-Pacific is uh, not to counter the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative, but to uh, show the other options for the Indo-Pacific regions, uh, no, not only uh, relying on the uh, Chinese uh, Belt and Road uh, Initiative, but also uh, to show the other options uh, uh, to be cooperate with the uh, uh, Free and open in Korea and open in the Pacific. So, uh, what do you think about uh, the relation between the B Belt and the Road and Initiative and the free and open in the, in the Indo Pacific? Or what do you think the free and open Indo Pacific uh, could substitute the Belt and Road Initiative? Thank you. We have two experts here. Um, I'll let both Patrick and John comment. Um, we have a great panel coming up this Friday. I'll be moderating, in fact. Uh, I recommend you watch it. It will be talking with a variety of uh, international experts uh, about um, the Indo-Pacific and free and open Indo-Pacific in particular. Um, you know, these are different concepts. They overlap in the Venn diagram somewhat, but they're different constructs. And even the original Japanese construct for free and open Indo-Pacific, and that's where we stole the name from, um, you know, was, was uh, largely a, a METI, an economic concept, as well as, uh, as, well as a security concept, the, the, the Democratic Diamonds concept originally that Prime Minister Abe mentioned the first time uh, he was in the Conte. So these are different concepts, um, but they are positive um, policies around which we can mobilize others. And we've seen India, and we've seen... Indonesia helped lead ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, around an uh, ASEAN outlook for the Indo-Pacific. But we haven't really pulled these threads together very well yet. Um, partly we need, just as the Obama administration was guilty of, you know, the resources haven't followed the rebalance or the free and open Indo-Pacific. And, and, and we mentioned the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and not replacing it with something. It, it's, it's one thing to walk away from TPP, but then follow up with the, what you said you are going to do. Let's get the bilateral free trade agreements. Let's figure out what else we can do for big investments. At least put something there to show the long-term staying power. That's what's missing. Uh, it's, the, it's what's specific, not the vision. The vision, the narrative, 
free, open, inclusive, as the Indonesians would add. All of those are things we can subscribe to Japan, Australia, the United States, Europe, uh, and the others in the region, because they include China. Uh, we're trying to provide an alternative, a positive alternative that we want to be mobilizing around. So it's a, it's a, it's a good vision, um, but implementation is where we keep coming up short, and we have work to do. John, Australia was one of the uh, yeah, um, well, instigators. To, to of me, this. the free and open Indo-Pacific is, is a more muscular re reiteration of what Americans call a rules-based liberal order, right? Set rules, uh, sovereign equality, um, openness, um, underpinned by American power and system of alliances, and you know that, what, what pretty much existed post World War II. The Belt and Road, I think it's it's slightly different. I mean, they're, they're not sort of parallel, opposite things. The Belt and Road, to me, is a explicitly China-centric model of um, how economic relations, infrastructure, supply chains, standards, etc., will operate in the Indo-Pacific and Eurasian areas. Um, the one big difference between them is that the Belt and Road, in my, in my view, not only is it specific to a country or it's Sino-centric, but the Belt and Road is designed to be a series of agreements between China and another country, of which the terms of which are negotiated with China. So they're not uniform. Um, but of course, China expects to have the leverage in negotiating terms. Um, so, so I think they're not directly opposing to each other, but they do come from different um, beginning points in terms of the principles driving them. I, sh I should add, the Belt and Road is, you know, Belt and Road is, is often equated to, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which China proposed. They're two very different things. Asian Infrastructure Bank is a multilateral organisation with a set of rules, etc. The Belt and Road is very different to that. It is a set of bilateral agreements negotiated with China. Um, and I think that's the difference between the Belt and Road and the Free and Open Indo-Pacific. Okay, please join me in thanking our panelists for a wonderful discussion. Thank you.